Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Music Live Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliveradio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today we talk to Clay Tarver. He is a guitarist, songwriter, and author. We talk to Clay about his life, starting with both of his bands, Chavez, which is still active, and Bullet LaVolta, his work over at MTV, how he learned the art of screenwriting from J.J. Abrams and Mike Judge, about his love of working on smaller writing projects for newspapers, and about several current exciting things that he has in the works as a screenwriter. Clay first came to prominence as the co-founder and lead guitarist of the Boston hard rock punk band Bullet LaVolta in the late 1980s, playing alongside such acts as Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Mud Honey, and the Lemonheads. In 1991, LaVolta disbanded, and he then formed Chavez with Matt Sweeney, Scott Marshall, and James Lowe, a band that has come to be known as one of the most progressive and hard-rocking math bands of the 90s. After a hiatus in which members were involved in several projects, Chavez is getting ready to start working on their first new recording since 1996. Clay has also worked as a screenwriter for television and film. He created the Jimmy the Cab Driver series for MTV in the mid-1990s. He has also written films like Joyride with J.J. Abrams. Clay has also written articles for newspapers, including a recent article in New York Times about rocker, soldier, and philosopher Jason Everman, and another article about his secret life as a rock dad. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio, this one featuring Clay Tarver. Clay, welcome to Music Life Radio. I'm glad you can be a part of the program. Thank you for having me. All right, we try to get right into the person's background that we're interviewing. And so what I'd like to know... Well, you know, where did you grow up? What kind of musical influences did you have when you were a child? Well, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I had sort of two kind of artsy parents, even though they were both like deep, deep style Texan. Um, and they were very, both were painters. My dad always loved jazz. And I was the third of three kids, and I sort of was that annoying kid that was always humming and singing mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And uh, I also had an older brother that was, you know, heavily into music. And it was just like at this pretty awesome time because he was born in 1960. So that meant he hit that key age of, you know, when you go into seventh grade in 
that then he bought a record and put it on, and it was a, a grand funk American band. Oh, nice. That was the first, first needle that dropped onto a record, a rock one. And it really terrified me in all the best ways. I mean, it was so, like, you know, I've, I've been scared of, you know, angry hippies ever since and <laughs> love them. But it was so negative. It was like, you know, these naked hippie guys sitting on a, on the hay bales with the American flags. And it was just like, and so, uh, I always felt like the music of that era, you know, always really influenced me. He loved Neil Young and the Kinks and all that. And so as I got older, I was the kid singing all the time. And my mom sent me to this thing called the, uh, it was, I guess it was Yamaha school music. It was like this, uh, Suzuki method of teaching very, very young kids how to play. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's, they would sort of teach kids all by learning to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the violin. Um, and so I was part of that generation of kids. And so I always played an instrument. And in fact, I played in youth orchestras. I went from violin to the cello. And I just always played music. It wasn't until I got to about seventh or eighth grade that I decided to, um, you know, start really playing um, guitar. And I went to this awesome guitar teacher named Galen Niles, who's a genius. And he was in this band called uh, Ultra. And they had the unique distinction of playing they were the opening band for the sex pistols when they played at san antonio uh at randy's rodeo which is the real famous you know where um sid vicious took off his you know bass and started swinging into rednecks yes or at least that's what the theory was (laughs) you know in reality i think it was that they were so shitty by that time that all the punks were annoyed with what a I'm sorry, what a waste this was. And um, so it wasn't really him swinging his bass at, at Rednecks. It was more like people in the crowd being annoyed with how they are. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, he taught me how to play guitar, and it was this weird thing where I'd always been overschooled in music, I felt like. Um, and he, I didn't, I purposely didn't want to read music. I did stuff off of tabs, but I would just bring in all the music I loved. And some of it, you know, I can say was the influence of my brother. Like I always loved the Kinks and Neil Young and, and, uh, ZZ Top and the Stones. And, and so I would just bring in, the lesson was sort of like bring in a record and he would write a tab for it. Then I'd go home and pretend to practice and learn it and then come back. And, but he was this real, real tough guy and he had a limp and drove a Porsche he was in the band Ultra. What a great name. Yeah. Anyway, so we, um, so that sort of, I started a band in junior high with some friends. And uh, what were we called? We were never really had a name. It was the Infuriators, I think was at one point. But we never really did anything. We just sort of played, rehearsed here and there. Um, and then I didn't, I just played on my own and like, in my room for years, but I even stopped doing the orchestra because I started playing um, basketball. I was very into that. And then um, 
And then towards the end, I started, of high school, I started taking lessons again just to learn some stuff. Because I really did miss being in music. And I went up to college at Harvard in Boston in 1984. And I brought my guitar. And um, that was really sort of the big opening of me into all kinds of music. Like, I, was, I always liked playing music. I was always very passionate about it. I was a little shy, and I wasn't the guy, I wasn't a record collector type, but I never have been, believe it or not. And so I played basketball my freshman year in college, and then, but I became friends with this guy, Bill Whalen, who also played basketball, and he was way into music, and he, he joined the radio station there. And the radio station was the moment where it really, 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 like, blew my head up with, you know, just how much music there was in the world. And it was this classic Harvard thing where it was all these kids way, way, way too smart, way too into it. Um, <laughs> but it was the greatest education ever. In a way, it was sort of like the, the pre-proto-internet because they, they had the system there. It was called, um, there was this thing called the rock book. It was like a notebook. And you, everyone would have a symbol and you would write comments on records, like on stickers on records, but then also get engaged in all of these discussions over whether, you know, this government issue record was good or it was too slow or, you know, whether, uh, you know, some other band was like totally overrated and full of shit or whether, you know, this was really interesting worth defending. And it was all just like, you know, the, on a comment board on the internet. And but what it did was it really, you know, for a while I was just so confused and lost and like all these guys would be know everything about everything and be like, I couldn't figure it out. And they would hate almost everything, but like love ACDC and I love ACDC or they would, you know, they would, uh, they would be super snooty about some stuff and not about others. And what it did was it really forced you to have an opinion and back it up and argue for it, defend it. And it was just super hyper intense. And the other thing, the radio station was so excellent because the radio stations in Boston were, there were a ton of them and you had to be really good to be competitive to have anyone listen to you. And so the, the idea for the radio station was not, you know, oh, free form, do whatever you want, man. You know, it was like this, guy that ran it was named Patrick Amory and when I was there there's another guy named uh, Jeff Weiss and Jim Barber who were a little bit older than when I got there and all of those guys are you know Jeff Weiss is a Disney and and music and Jim Barber is a big figure in the music business and Patrick Amory uh, is now the president of Madrigal Records um, but uh, which put out Chavez uh, puts out Chavez records and stuff so I've known him that's a been in our relationship I've had since I was eighteen. And he was always he was just, you know, he was very tough and mean about his opinions and yet if you push back at all, you know, he kind of respects you for it. So <laughs> um it was this really interesting time where I went from knowing sort of something about music to suddenly just total immersion. And very quickly I learned two things. One is that I'm a really bad DJ. I'm a very terrible so I apologize to everyone who's listening to this because <laughs> I have a terrible radio voice. Uh, but 
also, I just, I wasn't a record collector, and it just, it was great, because it was this period where I really listened a ton, and so that, that, uh, that guy I played basketball with, Bill, uh, Bill Wayland, and another guy who was on the station, who was a little bit older, who was a graduate student, and Corey Lug Brennan, was a great guitar player, um, we decided to start a band and, and we, Corey and I wrote a couple of songs like right away. And he was like, I was really primitive guitar player compared to him. He was like, he's an amazing, amazing guitarist. And, um, he has one of my favorite quotes ever, which is, he's like, a, he's this, his whole thing is to be like the most, um, like Tweedy buttoned up nerd. He's like a professor now at Bryn Mawr. Uh, no, at the uh, Rutgers. Oh. And in classics. And um, <laughs> which is, of course, like, you know, sort of what record collecting is, like, you know, digging out the unearthed things. And he, um, and he would, uh, he also played the most vulgar heavy metal guitar possible. And it was <laughs> awesome because he loved being both of those things. And he, um, uh, he and I, he, he, one of my favorite stories is that he was in, he, for a minute, you know, Dean Wareham, who did uh, Galaxy 500 and uh, Luna, and he and Corey were playing for a minute, we're maybe going to play together, <laughs> and Dean said to Corey, you know, the way I like to play guitar, I like to say as much as possible and as few notes as possible, and Corey was saying, <laughs> Well, actually, my philosophy is the exact opposite. <laughs> I want to say as little as possible and as many notes as possible. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, and Corey and I both had sort of uh, a similar thing, which we liked kind of in that environment of the radio station. We sort of liked slightly more metal stuff like Motorhead and more rock than the precious sort of record collector punk rock. And, um, and... So we were really into ACDC and the, uh, you know, Motorhead and stuff like that. And so um, we started the Volta, um, the three of us. And also the Lemonheads were started basically in that same radio station. Patrick Amory put out their first single on his label called Amory Arms. And Jesse Bretz, who's a bass player for Lemonheads, was at the radio station, a really good friend of all of ours. So um, our, um, and in fact, Corey put on his uh, eliminate first show in a friend's basement. And so it was all very, like, we were all, they were, they, they always did everything bigger and better than we did, but we, they put out this really good single, got signed to Tang, and then we started our band, and it was sort of like we followed in their footsteps, and we got signed to Tang as well. Um, in fact, our first, we played one show, just sort of a warm-up, but we put on a show our very first real show was a show we put on, on the Harvard campus and it was the Blake babies, us and the Lemonheads. And, um, and it was, you know, probably 300 people were there. It was so much fun. And I never played to a show like that. It was the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. And, and I just knew right then that this is what I wanted to do, um, for a while. And I knew right then I would never want to be a writer. (laughs) What was it about that gig? just the sheer adrenaline and the excitement of being on stage or was there something more to it? Well, you know, I'd always played on stage. I'd always played music on stages before. Like I know it sounds ridiculous, but youth orchestras, you, you know, you play in like 
on a stage, you know, like 2,000 seat, you know, theater for parents and stuff. And, you know, you played in gyms and I had done that. And I'd also played basketball in sort of high pressure, big situations a lot. But there was just something so fun and immediate. And I think everyone who walks on stage experiences that too. And it's just, I think it's so fun. It kind of screws your head up because you, you are just, it's, I've talked to a bunch of actors about it before because of what I do now. And I think actors, you know, get, get addicted to the experience, but they're always playing someone else. And and a musician, you sort of appear more or less as yourself, maybe a persona you built, but it's really this, you know, it's just so immediate. And for the most part, people really want you to succeed. Like when you walk on stage, you really have a chance to like seize the moment and take charge of it. And for the most part, people, I mean, they don't actively boo you, you know, like if you're an away team on <laughs> a basketball yeah. court. You know, they'll give you a shot for the most part. It's different when you open up for, you know, we shot us open up for Ween, and it was like the biggest nightmare ever because, you know, everyone just wanted to see Ween. Yeah. They hated getting subjected to our stuff, but whatever. There's there's fun in that too. But But anyway, going on stage, it just has this, it's so visceral and it's so much fun and it's the collaborative part of it is really fun to me. And especially, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but La Volta, I, I think I could say this. I, some, some of the records really do hold up well. Um, some of, especially the EP and the first album, but I, I would say we were one of the best live bands you know, around. I think that was pretty much our reputation, and and I really felt that. I mean, I felt like there was sort of nothing like it, and you feel this little crackle in the air, and people are super excited, and and I'd never really, I, I didn't realize, I don't think we realized how lucky we were, but we had that kind of, it was a blast to see us, and we were this, you know, super energetic fun thing, really from the beginning. Yeah.
not only being on stage was that so much fun, but it was just, it was so great to do something. I felt like I'd been in school for, you know, 12 years of high school, four years of college. It was, it was just felt so, my whole life had been spent preparing to do something or studying how to do something. And when you start a band, it's also, it's really fun to, you know, you put it together, you, you know, pick the name, you, everyone piles in, you all go, you're, you become this kind of gang. And then you decide what, in a weird sort of manifesto, what you want this to be about. We had very clear ideas. And then we went and did it, and people really liked it. And so, especially in Boston, if you started to do well, it was a super exciting place to be in a band. And at that time, too, I mean, we played with everybody. We played with everyone from that era, like, you know, Dinosaur Jr., I think the peak, you know, during your living all over me years and, you know, on and on and on, every band of that era. And we signed to um, Kang. We may have just had an EP, and I think our record had not come out yet in Europe. And the Lemonheads, the big turning point for us was when we went, when the Lemonheads, and I think this was in 1989 or 90, had sort of broken up, and they got asked to come over to Europe to do a tour. And none of us had really ever been to Europe. And they said, sure, can we bring our friends Bola Volta? It was incredibly gracious and cool of them to do that. And, um, and Corey Brennan left our band because he won the Rome Prize, which was very prestigious thing to win in, um, you know, you go and live in, in Rome for a year and study things. And so he had left the band, which is a funny way to lose a guitar player. It was Harvard guys. So <laughs> it was an ac- academic prize, not for like a heroin overdose. Yeah. It seemed reasonable uh, to you guys, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so then uh, we got this guy, uh, Kenny Chambers, who's an amazing musician. So good. And he was a super soulful guitar player who started uh, he was in this band, The Moving Targets. We were fantastic, you know, way ahead of their time. And so we were really the band in Boston doing well. And in the Lemonheads, it sort of, they lost one of their key guys and they, they just sort of fell apart. And when they got asked to do this tour in Europe, they said, hey, Corey, why don't you join the Lemonheads? And they just threw together whatever pieces of music they had laying around and a bunch of covers and stuff like they did Luca. Uh, anyway, they just threw together a bunch of stuff, threw a cover, and it was just to get us all to go to Europe. And we literally thought, you know, if we play in front of 25 people anywhere, it'll be great. You know, who cares? Yeah. And it just happened to be that moment in time where American music was really doing well. I had heard, I remember Jay Maskus telling me that, like, Dinosaur was sort of nauseatingly big in Europe. And I didn't quite know what that meant. And then we went over there and it was just this crazy experience of, I mean, it's every, I'd never been to Europe and like, it wasn't 50 people. It was, you know, 200 at every show. Mm-hmm. And then it would grow sometimes be 500 and then sometimes 800 or whatever. And, and REP did really well, um, in Germany of all places. And, we actually, I think we had maybe one or two places where maybe people wanted to see us more than the Lemonheads. Like in Berlin, I think we had mine. And, and I mean, it was sold out, you know. And this was Berlin when the wall was still up. And yeah. then we came back, and by the end, the last night of the show was in London. And it was really interesting because you could just see the, we had a horrible, like, sort of, 
the 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 way the our record was, came out was a bit bungled, and the Lemonheads it was just it, it wasn't because of that, but there was also their moment, and and Evan is really truly you know a star, and he hit London. It was just that moment where you could see the the London press seize on him. Yeah, and. Um, he just, we played a show in London and it was sort of never the same again. They were always much, much bigger than we were and did really, really well. And, and I think we went away on that tour and both of us basically got major label offers by the time we got back. And we decided we were a little frustrated with our label just because it wasn't, I don't know, like the tour was handled poorly. Even though we loved the guy, it just felt like we should, you know, we never really until we got paid, but it was, I love, we all loved Curtis, but we decided to take a shot with RCA and the Lemonheads went to Atlantic. And so um, when we got back, we really spent the next few years really going for it really, really hard. And it was sort of an exciting time. It was a bit insecure. And I, I know you called me because I wrote that article about Jason Everman and it was really in that period when I met him and, you know, we played with all of those bands that, you know, that tour where I met Jason, it was us and Mud Honey. Um, I'm still friendly with those guys. Uh, we played with the Afghan Wigs who opened for us uh, on part of that tour too. I'm still totally great friends with Greg Dooley to this day. Um, you know, we played with Soundgarden that, you know, I wrote that article about Jason and a few of those other guys are still, you know, I'm still friends with. And it's just weird. It was just the time where we were all bands trying to figure out what was going to happen next. And um, a lot of us had signed to major labels because it was a really unique moment where the labels, you know, this. And I remember being really aware of this, that, that major labels sort of didn't know what was happening and they admitted it. Yeah, there's something going on, but yeah. <laughs> and they sort of, and we thought of it, I mean, I remember on that, on one of these tours, I think with Sounder, and just saying, we had this discussion, which was, you know, the window was open for bands like us to become big, but no one had done it yet. And there was, there were three times when it had happened, one in 69 when it was like, Iggy and the Stooges and, and, you know, the MC5 and, um, when Bowie was big, it was like there were moments of people being open to that kind of music. Another time was 77 when it was all the CD stuff like the Talking Heads and the Ramones and, and, you know, Blondie and stuff. And then there was 1990. And that was really like, they really said, something's going on. We don't know what it is. We'll take a shot and just see what happens. And I mean, I, I can't state this enough. Like when you played in bands before then, the whole idea of like, you know, a hundred people seeing you in town was like sort of huge. You know, if somebody came through Boston and they sold out the rat for, you know, I guess it was maybe 150, 200 people, it was like a big deal. And the expectations of everybody was so not, the expectations were not remotely on making a big career about it. In fact, I always, in the back of my mind, I always felt like that was the point of the ethic, which was to not be a careerist kind of guy. And to, you know, like Husker Du used to set up their own equipment and it was very important to all of us, that ethic, that you wouldn't get a bunch of roadies and try to be rock stars. And as I alluded to in, in that article, when 
it was weird because we were on this tour with Mud Honey, who were so intent on keeping their heads on straight. They had done super well in Europe, but because those guys had been through a weird experience doing Green River with the eventual Pearl Jam guys. Oh, yeah. They, they were just very intent on, look, we're banned in a van. That's what we do. We're going to be indie rock through and through. We may be popular, but don't look at us like we're different, you know? And um, and then we would go, we went and played with Soundgarden, and it was the complete opposite. It was like they were out to make it. Yeah. They were professional corporate rock band out to make it big. Not corporate, like I think there was, look, if you were trying to make it big, you wouldn't go about it by doing that kind of music. I mean, they had definite artistic, you know, uh, leanings that, you know, they, they were doing their own thing that was real to them completely. But the, the, what they wanted to do was like to make it. And I had just never been around that. And so as stuff started to become more bands got signed and more sort of that thing where you know, more, you know about it, that sort of, insecurity and greed in all of us um, sort of permeated through almost everything on the one hand. On the other hand, it was really exciting. It was really, really fun. And so we all were trying to figure out what to do. We did, we'd have put out an EP and an album and Tang, and then that got re-released on RCA. And it did okay. I mean, not, not great, but it did fine. And and then we went in to do our major label, the real one, and our, it's a classic thing of, you know, RCA had, I don't know, they had, they had lost the president. The, this guy named Bob Boozer was the president who signed us, and I think that's Bob Boozyak. And uh, he got fired and then <laughs> promoted the guy who ran RCA Nashville to take over. And, you know... <laughs> It's a typical story. And we were just lost on there. And then, um, and I think we were also a bit lost too. We were trying to figure that out. And we sort of lost track a little bit of who we were and what, what we were about. And then we played a show, Nirvana's last show before Nevermind came out, um, two weeks before the record came out. And it was the Smashing Pumpkins opening for us, opening for Nirvana at Austin. And I remember thinking like, you know what, I've heard this so many times, like, oh, they're the next big thing. Soundgarden was supposed to be the next big thing, but yeah. never quite had gotten there. And I was like, don't be intimidated by these guys. And of course, <laughs> Nirvana, I remember we played a show. So those three bands, we were pretty popular in, in Boston, I'd say. And I think we, the Smashing Pumpkins, us, and Nirvana, was still only like a 500, maybe, maybe 300 people venue at the time. And I remember Nirvana saying the next day, Hey, we'll do an all ages show tomorrow here, you know, in the afternoon. And I was like, yeah, right. Like anyone's going to show up. And it totally was sold out. And I remember thinking, <laughs> okay, something's going on here. <laughs> yeah. I had heard this and I don't know if it's true, but I'd heard that they, uh, they then the next day they left for Europe to go to a Sonic youth. And then nevermind came out. And I heard that when they left, they were all like basically homeless. Yeah. So this, this is the rumor going around among bands that they were basically homeless. And then uh, when they got back, there was like a million dollar check waiting for each of them. Because <laughs> yeah. there was, and obviously things were never the same for any of us after that. Yeah. Because once that record became big, then one by one, all these other bands really 
did well. We went on this tour with COC and Prong, who were lovely guys. I never felt like a band like that at all. Um, and it was a bit alienating. And then we went and did a pretty big tour in Europe, and our singer had had a son, and it just became like too much, and it was clear the band wasn't selling. And things were, you know, kind of dipping for us. And so he told us at the end of the tour, you know, I got to quit. I got to take care of my kid. And it felt like the right time. I didn't fight him at all. And um, and then we came back and played two last shows. And I, I, I think it's I think we're a pretty beloved live band, especially in Boston. And I wrote this article about it in the Boston Phoenix about why we'd split up. I haven't read that in 20 years. I'd be sort of curious to see it. But but it was kind of you know a, a bit about this like music you know, art versus commerce and how you figure all that stuff out. And sometimes you look good and sometimes you look bad. And, and, um, so that I had been out of college for four years. So that was 1992. And I remember thinking, Oh, you know, I definitely, I was really scared because I wanted to keep playing music. And we had a roadie named Matt Sweeney. who was just this infectious, really funny guy. We seemed to really connect on our musical taste. He was a good guitarist. He was in this band, Skunk, which was a twin tone. And he was a singer and a good guitar player. And he was in New York. And I really wanted to, you know, I, I said, hey, let's, let's, why don't we do something? So I packed up all my shit, left uh, New York, Boston for New York. And started with him and I knew someone at MTV and at MTV um, this woman Amy Finnerty got me a job and I was 27 and uh, I w- was a PA there for 75 bucks a day but it was kind of awesome because I literally got a job and had an apartment with a friend of mine from Boston and moved all my stuff into a practice space <laughs> you know and started work the next day. And so I was like, Oh, you know, this is working out. You know, I, I felt very proud of my organizational skills. What time frame was this? Was this in like 93? This would be 1992. And it was sort of painful for me because it was literally like everyone I knew. I think the lemon had to get put in a buzz bin the week I started there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was like <laughs> everybody hard, I knew man. was coming through. I saw Evan like a month after being there. It was so weird. And I knew all these people. And it was like, I remember working on a special for the, the Smashing Pumpkins were playing and I was talking to James Eha and I was like, look, we've come a long way. You've, you're perform- about to perform live on MTV and I'm standing here with this headset on my head. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still kind of fun and Matt, ended up being sort of borderline fraudulent about how together he was going to be. <laughs> and, and I could barely get him to rehearse with me. Uh, and he was so annoying. And at one point I quit. And he was just like, well, you might as well just keep playing with me because you're not, you, there's nothing else going on either. So I, <laughs> and I had all these threats. And finally we sort of got our shit together and started this band Chavez. And, we, it was really humiliating because we kept trying to get good drummers and nobody would play with us. And we thought we were sort of, Matt knows every, had already known everybody. And, you know, I've been in this band and 
So finally we got, we convinced James Lowe, who was in this band wider that Matt was playing with on the side, who was this drummer that I had admired from afar for years. He was this Chinese drummer in the band Live Skull. He's, he's four years older than me and five years older than me. And he was, you know, amazing. And we basically just kissed his ass relentlessly <laughs> to play with us. And, you know, that's one of the key rules of being a successful rock band, even though we weren't totally successful, but it's having a great drummer. Oh, definitely. And he's a great drummer. And so we, um, and it was three of us, and we had a bass player. With the stuff we were doing, it was like, Matt and I had seen all these bands sort of go forward and be part of the alternative nation and, you know, make bucks. And and we said, you know what, we're not going to do this. We want to do it the right way. And if we're going to make it, we want to make it on our own. We don't want to be some hype thing, you know, because of who we know. And which, of course, was a mistake probably because we should have just taken money. I think, I think we were such... We weren't arrogant. We just had this idea of what we wanted to do. And I think like Electra offered us a, a deal on my uh, on my answering machine. I just never called the guy back. I'm serious. Oh, wow. And so we and so the, some of my best friends, including that guy Patrick Emery and Chris Lombardi and Gerard Cosloy, had this record label called Matador, which they had put out a cassette that Volta had done. But they were like everything we loved, which is all our friends doing it pretty much for the right reasons. They had great taste. Um, they were very cool. And they heard we were playing. And these are some of my best, best, best friends. And they were like, uh, Chris Lombardi, I'll never forget it. He was like, I heard you, I heard you're recording a single. And like, we had recorded a single before we ever played a show or anything. Mm -hmm. So that's what we figured we wanted to do. And I remember him going, I heard you recorded a single. Come come get it to me. I want a copy. I want a copy of, of the tape. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> and it was so nerve-wracking. I remember like going to 676 Broadway, which is where their offices were. And I was standing down the stairs. Like, should I press the button? I don't want to do this. I don't want the judgment of all my friends, yeah. you know, because everyone had heard about, oh, it's a bad that he he brought me in and he just tortured me. He's like, where's the tape? Where's the tape? And I have it. And he's like, Ooh, super group of all the super guys. Okay. <laughs> where are you going to record it? Mustique. I'll put that on the top. He's like, Oh, sorry. And he puts it on top of a pile of demos. That was like, you know, like five bushels of demo tapes. And he's like, I'll get to it in a few months. <laughs> and, um, and literally he was like, well, wait, first check this out. And he had just, that day, I got my copy of uh, Pavement's Cut Your Hair. Oh, okay. Cut Your Hair, which is probably the biggest single to that date. And uh, he, I had to sit there enduring it, you know, this <laughs> perfect song while he had my demo tape. And so anyway, that night, to my great relief, he called me up and said, I think it's amazing. Oh, that's great. And so they became our label. And it was sort of great um, because it was our friends, and it was sort of like... You know, in retrospect, I think sometimes we think, ah, oh, we should have just taken the money and just gone for it. But we did what we said we were going to do. Yes, you will do now. What can't be done? You're unreal is here now. 
uh, L.A., San Francisco, and Seattle. Those were the only places anyone gave a shit. Yeah. And we were a little, you know, we just felt like we didn't have, we weren't touching a nerve, but we knew we were mature musically, and we knew what we wanted to do. And then by the time the second record came around, we had all been in bands before, so we we just, I think there was just this unspoken agreement. I think I started getting distracted by some other things at MTV. I wouldn't say distracted, but I got other offers that were interesting. And so did Matt. He did a tour playing bass for Guided by Voices. And James, you know, was a little frustrated with both of us. But I think there was also this sense of, like, we only want to do what we want to do now. We, we're old men in rock, and we're not going to do stupid shit if the label's not good. We're not going to, you know, if we feel like they're not promoting it and it's not promoting it and it's something we want to do, we'll do it. But if it's not something we want to do, we're just not going to do it. And we ended up, you know, doing a really good record, I thought, which is right the fader. And um, even that was sort of hard. It wasn't so much hard between us as it was just like, I don't know what it was. I think it was just, it, it, now I think it sounds so good, but it was, we had a hard time with the, one of the producers on it and ended up costing us a lot of money. And, but it just wasn't easy. And then we did a tour in Europe with Railroad Jerk. It was fine, but it just wasn't so, it just, it was just fine. It didn't feel like anything was growing. And we would go and tour with Guided by Voices and kill it in Detroit and play like a, a record store the next day for free and then nothing would be in the papers and then we'd come back thinking, well, come on, now word of mouth is spread and, you know, nobody would be there. And, you know, if you've been doing that for 10 years, it gets sort of hard and, like I said, we sort of retreated to this place of, like, we'll just do what we want to do. We never really stopped playing. We never broke up. Um, But we all sort of drifted into other things and, that for me sort of directly led to where I am now, which is that I started um, at MTV just doing the stupidest crap on the channel, like, you know, MTV jams with John Cencio and all this stuff. And that bass player from the Lemonheads, Jesse Peretz had quit to become a video director and a filmmaker. And he said to me, you know, one of my roommates is this actor who's now named Donald Lowe. He was my roommate in college. And Donald was, is flat out, used to be one of the funniest human beings I've ever, ever, ever. He still is, but I, it wasn't just like the funniest guy I knew. It was like some of the funniest comedy I've ever even experienced was like the five or six years we lived together and I would be sitting on his couch, on our couch and just laughing at it. He's just a brilliant, brilliant mind. And so, we did this thing. Jesse was like, I have this idea for a character. You and I could direct it. You have to, you know, we both have connections at MTV because you work there. We'll get Donald to do it. And it was this, it was this cab driver. I don't know if you remember it, but it was called Jimmy the cab driver. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So we directed those and it was all Donald improv, but we would kind of craft the pieces, um, in editing somewhat, but it was all Donald's brain and me and Jesse tossing softballs to him and trying to, you know, elicit usable rants. 
And it was really interesting because it was the first time I'd ever had anything sort of hit a big way. And, you know, now when someone has an idea, they can just go shoot it and put it on YouTube. And for us, you know, when we actually shot it on a high video tape and did a thing, I think we did it all for 75 bucks by getting favors. And we sent it to Eric Jaculi at MTV and he said, sure, here's a hundred thousand dollars. Go make a crew and shoot it. And we felt like we'd won the lottery. I mean, we really had. And when we did them, it was so weird after, you know, all this angst and like, you know, insecurity or, you know, just being really uptight about music and what the bright moves were. And, and just like, I always felt the stakes were very high about music. Like, you know, and I feel like I rose to the occasion somewhat, but um, it, it was always felt very like, you know, overwrought at times. This was just so easy. And it was like, partly because the was so talented, but it just, it was totally confident. And the pieces came out and they were a big, huge hit. And everybody was talking about them. And MTV, you know, said do another set. And I did another set. And, and I had been working at MTV all that time, you know, because I was doing this band and I literally could not give a shit less about climbing up the ladder there because I was going to be out of there, which of course works for you when you're at a corporate environment. Like the less you give a shit, the more people are like, whoa, what's going on with that guy? <laughs> and, um, and then I did these things and I did a big hit. So we actually ended up making enough money that, you know, and I was going on tour that I just stopped doing the normal you know, TV shows there. But at the end end of it, it had done so well that MTV said they wanted to come around and maybe make a movie. And I think they hired the drummer for the Women Heads as a writer to uh, write a script, but it was our fault. We just didn't know what we were doing. And I just thought at the time, Donald and Jesse both had lots of success. They had already had careers, and so when this hit, they were really quick to take advantage of it. But I, it was the first thing I'd ever done. So I said, well, why not all end up writing the script? It would be a good way to learn how to, you know, write. And, you know, it's a, it's a viable project. It would be good as opposed to just doing an idea and sitting in a cafe for three months. And so, I, like, the second day I started, Donald was in this horrible remake of Dia Ball Week with starring Sharon Stone. And he was like, dude, me and this other guy who are the, we're the comic relief of this movie, but he's totally awesome. He's like this young wonder kid. He's screenwriter. He's, he's totally cool. And like, you got to meet him. And so usually whenever Donald says anything like that about someone, I, I it's such a turn off to me. <laughs> and, uh, this case I flew out to Pittsburgh and him. And that guy was J.J. Abrams. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. No, that really was him. And he ended up being, the, you know, the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. And he lived in New York. And so J.J. actually taught me. He was like, I'll be a producer. You've never written a script. I love showing people how to do it. I love the character. So why don't you, why don't you all be their producer and show you how to do it? And so for the next year, year and a half, like, incredibly generous amount of time. He basically, you know, became my mentor in screenwriting. 
And I wrote the script, and MTV wasn't interested in it, but David Letterman read it and really liked it and wanted it to be Worldwide Pants' first film. I think I'd taken too long to write it, as I always do. Um, but more than that, I think like the character had just been around. By the time we got it out from MTV, the character was sort of old, and it, it didn't get sold. But yeah. at the end of that experience, J.J. asked me if I wanted to, if I was ever interested in writing a studio picture. And I, I was very punk rock about it. I was like, yeah, I don't really know. And he said, because I've got this idea, and I think you'd be really good to do it. And I was like, uh, okay, let me think about it. And I asked a bunch of friends, and they're like, are you fucking crazy? Go do it. You, you'd make a ton of money. And so I was like, okay. And I called him back. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I wrote it. And it was this, it was the first job I ever got. It was with Fox. It was a scary movie that we called Squelch. And it was about two guys um, getting chased by a truck driver. And there was almost no idea for the movie. It was basically two guys in a car talking, giving shit uh, to a trucker. And at the end of it, the guys, the truck driver would say, you know, you know what, you better get that fixed. And they're like, what? That taillight. And that was the entire idea for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and from that, I built it. We built it out for JJ and I ended up, I sort of, JJ and I ended up writing it together and it was going to be his first movie. Then he dropped out and John Dahl, he dropped out to do TV, which he had not done. And so he, he was going to direct it and then decided to do Felicity. And, uh, and obviously his career has done quite well since. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, I, I say that as the last time I spoke with him. I wrote congratulations for, you know, doing the new, you're about to do the new Star Wars movie. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he, uh, uh, John Dahl ended up directing it, and it was called Joyride. And the movie's okay, and, it, you know, people sort of liked it. It got a few good reviews. Um, it didn't do so well. But the script really gave me a career and the next job I got um, with that same executive at Fox was the guy was like, do you know Mike Judge? And I was like, no, we, I didn't, I, even though the same guy, MTV Beavis and Butthead, yeah. MTV Beavis and Butthead, the same guy, Abby Kukui, that, that Mike had dealt with, did the cab driver with us. I had never met him. And weirdly, he was a big fan of a Chavez video that we did. Ah. And, and, and then it turned out, you know, he's a musician and he's from Texas. And, and he was like, oh, I'm doing this movie that's going to ruin my career. And that was Office Space. And it came out after I met him, I went to go see Office Space. And I was like, oh, fuck, I like this guy so much. And I'd already known it had done badly. And I was like, God, please let this movie be good. And it was so good. It really it was great. It's, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. And so I called him up afterwards and I was saying all that stuff you say to someone, to someone whose movie bombed, <laughs> where you don't mean it. They're like, no, it's really good. And, you know, it, I thought it was funny. People just didn't get it. Yeah. You know, only this time I actually meant it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so from that, it was sort of like JJ and Mike were my two big rabbis in the movie business. And 
over the years since then, I've always sort of worked with one or the other. Um, and But around that time was when Shabbos really started to become inactive, just partly because I was getting sucked into this kind of stuff and being very stressed out about it. And also Matt was, you know, doing other projects, and James was getting frustrated that he didn't know what was going on with us, and he started doing more work. And he's a, he was a computer engineer for a while. And so anyway, we never broke up, but we kept on doing stuff. And I just remember this great pain that I felt about that this business, like I, I didn't really want to be a writer. Like I loved directing and I loved making things, but writing was just all the hard part and none of the reward. I mean, you get paid money, but it's, it's really hard. And there's not much of a release to it at all. And I always say to people, it's like when you write a good song, you get to play it in rehearsal and <laughs> exactly. maybe play it for people. And, you, you know, when you finish a screenplay, you get to stop. You know, that's yeah. it. Like you, you don't even want to read it again in case <laughs> you find something you want to change. And, and so few of them get made in the movies. And yet it's a good living is an, an interesting, mentally, creatively challenging field. And it's, it's filled with lots of exciting possibilities, but it's a real grind. And I just remember being like sort of just so torn about like, on the one hand, you know, I wanted to do more music. And on the other, and yet I felt like sort of I wasn't, graduating up in a way that really felt like, oh, this is a band that really matters, that really is connecting with people. And I was being, you know, pulled away to do all this other stuff that was really, it did feel like graduating up, but in a way that wasn't all that fun. And I just sort of had a foot on two boats as they were pulling apart (laughs) from each other. And I... It was really hard. It was really miserable, and I didn't feel like I could explain it to anyone, and I didn't even know what I wanted to have happen. And then Matt got asked to join Zwan with Billy Corgan, and uh, I was like, yeah, dude, go do it. I was sort of bummed, and it really it was ex- exciting as hell to see him play Saturday Night Live in these big places. It was also just, you know, I really wished we had been able to do that, you know? Um... But somehow through it all, Matt and I just, we were really good to each other about it and was, we're never, and so it really, we never hit a place where it was like anything other than I was proud of him and, and he was proud of what I was doing. And, and, and that allowed us, when that went away, we just kept playing, sh- we would get asked to play shows here and there and we'd do it. And then we hadn't played one for quite a while when we got asked to do Matador's thing in Las Vegas. Matador re-released all of our stuff in 2004 or five. No, I'm sorry, six. And we played like three shows and one of them in New York was just incredibly fun. And we just kept saying, let's do another record, let's do another record. And then I had three kids and there was this writer strike coming up and I abruptly had to move out to LA, which I did not want to do. And I felt like, okay, that's the end of the band because I'm not even living in New York and 
I was literally crying on the plane. <laughs> oh, wow. And then there was this big writer's strike and recession and everything changed. And and then Matador called us up to see if we wanted to do this this thing in Las Vegas. And it was very tough to get us all together. And it ended up being great. Like, we had a blast. And we went over really, really well. And they kind of said, hey, why don't you, you know, do another record? And we then got asked to play All Tomorrow's Parties in New York. Then they started in New Jersey, and that went really well. And then the last summer, we got asked to play All Tomorrow's Parties in, in London and then Barcelona at Primavera. Another big festival, and that went great. And so over the years, we've just been, it's funny, we have 10 songs, and they're sort of peppered evenly throughout all the years. And we finally cut a deal with Matador, and we want to, we're going to record in December, I hope. So um, it uh, somehow it's sort of never quite left us. And I feel like we can do what we want to do because A, we never broke up and B, we were never particularly popular. And so it's not like we're cashing in on anything, but more like we just wanted to uh, just do something that we thought was good. Well, and then the way the music business is set up today, you have the opportunity to do things like that now where you can really run your own schedule and do your gigs you yeah. want to do and not have, and you know, you can deal with family and, and everything else, and you don't have to worry about going on the road for a year straight, you know? Right, right. We always joked around about it that we were sort of like sponsored hobbyists. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, like Lionel Trains. We had we were sponsored by Lionel Trains. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we won't make any money at it, but like, we got to, that trip to Europe, you know, we made, um, we each made enough to fly over our lives, you know, and that was, it was really fun. It was amazing. I mean, you know, when does that happen? Yeah.
screen has really, the, the money's pretty good, it's pretty challenging, but, and if somebody had told me when I was a musician, like, hey, they tell you whether they make a movie or not, it would have been like, great, sign me up, but, but just the numbers of, are against you about things ever reaching an audience. It's just really, really, really tough to get a movie made, at least ones that, that they pay me to, to write. And after a while, it really started to drive me insane. And I realized there was a guy named Hugo Lindgren who I'd been friends with who contacted me when I was in New York because he'd read that article I'd written in the Boston Phoenix way back in 1992 about why La split up. And he always liked it. And he had been asking me to write something when he was a lower editor at the New York Times Magazine. And I just, ne we never got around to it. I would sort of, he would take me out and pay for me to drink a lot of scotch. And <laughs> we, would, we became friends. And But after I did that Matador thing in Las Vegas, Matt said something on the thing, which was um, uh, on stage, which was, you know, Clay's kids don't even don't even know he's in a band. And Hugo, in the intervening years, had actually become the editor of the whole New York Times Sunday magazine. And so I called him up and I said, hey, this would be a really good idea for an article. He said, I have never told my kids. And it was supposed to be a little bit longer, but it ended up being the back page lives piece. Um, and it was really interesting. It was only 800 words, and I'd been writing for 15 years, and you know, nobody had ever read anything except for executives and producers, and, and here was, I published this little piece, and it was one of those things where you know, everyone I knew seemed to read it and really liked it. And then after that, um, that did so well that he, uh, I... It, it was reminded me of two things. One is that I just want to do smaller stuff. Over the years, I'd worked on two movies that I was trying to write and direct. One was a comedy about hunting that Mike Judge was going to produce, which came so close at, not too close at Fox, but very close at HBO films to getting made and just fell through. Um, and then for years and years, I worked on a project that I was trying to get to direct with J.J. Abrams as a producer, and he became, you know, this incredibly powerful guy, but even he or my own failures couldn't get it made. I mean, I worked on it for like seven or eight years, and it was about barber, competitive barbershop singing, and it was a really fun topic and uh, world, and there's this amazing documentary about it called Voices that I kind of discovered, and, and um, I went through the whole round and it didn't get made and I, I just realized I wanted to do something small that actually got somewhere and so I wrote this little article and it did well and then from that I sort of very loosely based on sort of the Shabbos experience I wrote a pilot for Showtime which was about a band sort of like us that never was anything but because of pace changing you know, people seemed to appreciate a little bit more now that they were gone. And as older guys that get offered all of these things that their younger guys, younger selves were dreaming of, only it was kind of, only now it's kind of impossible because one's a dad and one's sober, and but one's still in the game. And so I'm still waiting to hear if that goes forward um, or not. 
but they seem to like it, so I don't know. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think it, I think it's funny. It's, it's yeah. wickedly funny. But um, and Jack Black is producing that. But from that, I realized how important it was for me to do an article, and I really enjoyed the experience. And from that, I wrote. I was thinking, like, okay, what's the article I should do next? And and it was Matt and I had both been friends with. Uh, Jason Everman, in fact, of all of us, Matt Sweeney had stayed in touch with him the longest. And we all knew each other from way back when, when, when Jason, you know, I don't know how familiar your listeners are to that story, but Jason was a guy who, you know, you broke it because you, you had him on this very podcast before I did, but before I, I wrote my article, but Jason was a guy who was, had the unique distinction of being in both Nirvana and Soundgarden and got kicked out and screwed around with music for a while longer, but then abruptly joined the army and became a very hardcore, wildly successful special forces guy. Yeah. You know, I started, I think I may have even started the process before you talked to him, but at any rate, I was under the belief that no one had really heard this story before and it was so interesting. And so I had to go... Um, Matt had fallen out of touch with him, but I, he gave me an email and I contacted him and slowly over time, you know, got to talk to him about stuff and he agreed to do it. And it, it took about a year and a half. And, you know, I talked to a bunch of other people, including, cause I had known Jason from the Soundgarden days and he was all, and that was the other thing is that we were the lowly opening band. He was so, so nice to us that, um, I always felt very um, grateful to that. And in fact, he, when he got kicked out of Soundgarden, when Kenny Chambers, the guy I was telling you about, quit, we actually tried him out for Bullet Volta. And um, he just wasn't right, and it felt terrible because nothing would have been better than to help him out, and it would have been a perfect fit, but it wasn't. And he came to see Chavez when we played in, in Seattle when he was stationed in Washington State and in 96 when we played with the crocodile. And I remember being really freaked out because he was so into being in the army. And <laughs> it was it was just, I remember thinking like, well, man, you, you want to kill people? I was very judgmental and immature yeah, about it. Yeah. But it was also just like seeing him on the other side of this fence, you know, and, and it was freaky. And I... I, you know, to a degree, I kind of, I, I was, it wasn't like I was going to see him all the time, but I was a little bit, like, taken aback. Matt Sweeney, because after he, after he did that, he ended up moving to New York, back to New York, and Matt stayed friends with him well after 9-11, and Matt was always like, you got to get in touch with Jason, it is the story, it is the story. And so when I did, it took a while to get in. He's a very reticent guy. You're the only other person he's told any of this stuff to, really. That's amazing that he opened up. Everyone and and like guys I contacted from Nirvana checked out that interview and couldn't believe it. And even a sister had no idea he would ever speak to anyone that long. So yeah. kudos to you in this program. But he, uh, but it was a really amazing thing, and and so it was a really interesting story. And it was also a way for me to. The New York Times kept wanting me to put in some of my perspective a little bit, not to make it about me, but to just talk about, you know, what was going on at that time. So that came out in 
the end of June, yes. And uh, it was really amazing. It really was a big story, I think, for them. And it was the biggest thing I've ever done. So I'm hoping Jason and I can do more with it in some capacity. I'm, I'm not sure how. So, so it, it, it's been funny, but it really felt nice to me because it sort of unified the two sides of my writing and, you know, my music side. And it also felt good to not have it be contingent on a bunch of Hollywood executives. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Great article. And uh, the, the way I found out about it was because tons of people started going to the Music Life Radio website. And I was like, what is going on? Something is going on. <laughs> and then I found out it was your article. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, you know, it's... Then I hope we can be mutually beneficial here because oh, I was totally. I felt scooped. I told you this before we came on, but the uh, I didn't know about it until after I'd contacted Jason, and then somewhere in the process, I noticed that I I tried to make a point of not relying on it and doing my own research, just because I don't know why I, I felt like I should. And then I think I told the guys at uh, the New York Times about it, but. It didn't really go very far. And then the guy, the editor of Hugo, like emailed me like two nights before it came out and was like, uh, you know, are you aware of this link on the Wikipedia page that he did this whole big radio show? And I was like, uh, uh, <laughs> I think so. Is this going to be a problem? And he's like, well, I have just a couple other questions for you. Sure. What does music mean to you? Music to me is like the most collaborative, visceral experience. And I continue to be drawn back to it. Nothing touches me more than music. And um, I think I define myself by it still. Um, I trust people based on it. And I judge people sometimes based on it. But I also, um, it's a conversation that tickles my brain in, I think, a pretty special way. And I think it does for everyone who's drawn into it. But when I see a band, it really rocks my world or hear something that, you know, I had never heard of Terry Reed until like three years ago and I couldn't believe I'd never heard him. Or the pretty things I'd never really gotten into or, you know, different things like that. Um, from the past or in, in the current timeline, it's, it's this ongoing pure art discussion to me and I feel like music fans and or at least the people like me and who care about it it's a real savvy group of people like you can really sniff insincerity really quickly and you can tell when something special um, and for me it's just always I'm sort of been amazed because when, when I was younger it was like if you or over 30, you're no longer even a part of any conversation. And whatever has happened in the music world with the internet and just the general geeking out of everybody, it's been really nice. I feel like, you know, people, there are a million ways to participate in music compared to very few way back in the day. And it's, it's still something that totally inspires me. And, you know, there's, there's just no, no, there's nothing else that makes me feel the way I do when something is musically exciting to me. There was a quote from Stephen from Pavement that says, you play guitar like a goddamn man. What does that mean? That's yeah. uh, just the greatest thing anyone <laughs> could say about anybody. 
I have to parse that for you? <laughs> no, oh, come on. no, you don't. I just want to well, well, hey, get he's your like, reaction. He's like the great. One of the things about Steve is that, you know, he's an incredible guitar player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's amazing. And it's just so effortless and that his singing is, but it's just like, he's, it's very easy to, uh, to underrate how sick a guitar player is. So when he said that, I was very thrilled. So yeah. it made me feel like a goddamn. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. What is next for you? What are you working on now? What's next for Chavez? Chavez, we're going to record that record in December. We played enough shows that we said we don't want to do anymore until we record and have new material. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to get everybody to do it. Um, but I think we're going to record it out in Los Angeles here at Queens of the Stone Age place. Oh, nice. In December. Um, and then for me, uh, I've had the busiest summer of my life professionally and doing a whole bunch of things. I just wrote Dodgeball 2. I'm working on a thing at Disney Pixar. And I have another thing at Disney Future I'm doing with Ben Stiller's company, who I really love. And I'm... Uh, and on the side, I've been consulting on Mike Judge's show on HBO about Silicon Valley, and that's been a blast. And so it's been really nice to work with him again, and we should start shooting that in October, and it'll be, I think, air in sometime in March or something. So it's been really crazy. Um, I've had too much to do, but it's been really fun. And hopefully, you know, there's... I want to do more stuff like... This Jason piece and my little lives piece. I really had fun doing it, and so I'm hoping to do you know, more stuff like that. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and I appreciate you being on the show. Oh, good. All right, thank you, Clay. All right, thanks, Dan. All right, have a good evening. Bye.
Thanks again to Clay Tarver for that awesome interview. You just listened to The Ghost by the Sea by Chavez. That's available on Better Days Will Hunt You, the album by Chavez. And you can get that from Matador Records. We're looking forward to the new album by Chavez. It should be out in 2014. My name is Dan Sauter. Thanks for checking out Music Live Radio, and we'll catch you next time.